Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 226. This week, we talk with Matt Heidinger about how flexible adaptive cards have become. The five laws of software estimates. A thin, repairable device from HP. And Google's robots.txt parser is now open source. To celebrate the launch of their .NET Core support for APM, Raygun is giving away a free Raspberry Pi prize pack to a lucky winner. All you need to do is go to raygun.com slash dev dash show, and Raygun will let the winner know via email. Don't wait, because the winner will be chosen by July 22nd. This week, we have Matt Heidinger, program manager that runs Adaptive Cards. How's it going, Matt? I am doing just fine. How are you guys? Good. And it's been well over a year since we spoke last and we were like, man, we're just missing some Matt in our life. Just in time. Just in time. Summer's out. And uh, we actually just had a release too. So it works out pretty well. Exactly. And we saw you at Build and we said, uh, you got to come back on the show. So here you are. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. Yep. Uh, Carl, what's the status on our stickers? We still have them. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I think that's funny is uh, a lot of the emails, and I would say over half, are saying, if you still have stickers. Uh, here's a little spoiler alert. Don't worry about us running out. Yeah. So if you want us to mail you some physical stickers, email us uh, at feedback at msdevshow.com with stickers in the title and put your ad- name and address in the body, and we will mail you those stickers okay has that slowed or down at all? if you want to mail the mail just send a p.o box carl <laughs> <laughs> or just just show up at carl's home at one five right <laughs> <laughs> so carl is that slowing down is it staying steady no it's pretty steady really? and uh i have a little bit of a backlog um to catch up on okay. but don't be afraid uh, get those uh requests in and i'll send them out do that every couple of weeks so okay cool uh, and then what do we have for the comment of the week? This week, we have a comment of the week uh, from iTunes. It's a five-star st- review, so thank you very much, from Flinterson. Uh, he says, I listen every week, always enjoy the show, and lots of interesting topics. So thank you very much. We love hearing the feedback. Uh, if you have anything constructive as well, uh, let us know. You can email us at feedback at msdevshow.com. You can comment on our website or on Twitter. We especially love five-star iTunes reviews like the one we just got from Flinterson. Absolutely. So let's jump in the news. Uh, the first one here is very exciting. Raspberry Pi now on sale. And this is actually the Raspberry Pi 4. And this thing has come a long way, hasn't it? it it's got some pretty significant updates uh, with this uh, 4 version. So uh, it has a new ARM chip on there, which it says it's about three times the performance. So I guess we could take that at about word Mm -hmm. um but one of the cool things is it now has four gigabytes of ram which means that in addition to running all the various versions of linux on there it could probably run windows on there kind of halfway decent so oh that would be maybe on there yeah that would be interesting (laughs) yep i that would be that would be yeah that'd be very interesting because there are you know there's laptops that are running arm now that are running arm windows so it would be kind of interesting for like kids computers because i know you can run like minecraft on there and all this other stuff um or i mean i guess you can just run linux on there and run all that stuff too i mean you don't have to have windows but but interesting possibilities yeah i mean a lot of people have certain kinds like media server stuff on there so just that extra ram headroom really helps out a lot 
either way. Yeah, I haven't really heard how. I wonder how this thing fares with like something like Plex. I mean, it's probably. Oh, I bet you it would be great because yeah. you know people do run Plex on the existing ones, and if this has uh, an improved ARM processor and you know get double the RAM on there, mm-hmm. uh, that's got to be amazing. Well, and I noticed that it has the 4K uh, at 60 frames per second hardware decoding of the HEVC video. So I'm wondering if this thing is just a, a way better video monster than the than the old ones. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see. Yeah, it has dual mini HDMI ports on there. Mm-hmm. Although what is disappointing about that, it says, you know, they, they, they point out the fact that it's at resolutions up to 4K, but that's at 30 hertz. And 30 hertz, yeah. honestly, is like super painful. Uh, on a 4K, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's painful. I mean, th- 30 hertz is painful on any screen. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're using uh, le- lesser resolution screens, then then it's going to be at 60 hertz, which is pretty cool. And then full uh, gigabit Ethernet. Um, I didn't realize that that wasn't there before. I guess there was a limitation where it would limit it to like 200 megabit of uh, throughput. So that was yeah. So you can take your full gigabit networking at home and. Uh get full use out of that jason yep so if with one gigabyte of ram this thing is 35 bucks and then if you get the if you get two it's 45 four gigabytes is uh 55 and then i noticed too there was oh, a couple things here USB-C, uh which is awesome for because power. that is such a better connection so the the one thing that is goofy so if you're just having if you have like an existing setup where you have like raspberry pi 3 and you just try swapping it out and try to use like dongles to work with these yeah. these are smaller ports and uh, are a little bit closer together so if you have dongles you're it's it's not going to work oh, i've seen okay. somebody like like try to like bend it and do unnatural things and um you do have to get like the native cables okay. for those and and one really cool thing to do with these pies by the way is to use their poe hat which um you know all the switches in my house are are poe so i could actually just take like a uh, one of these pies with a poe hat i could just plug it into a network port and it would actually boot off of that and that to me is really cool having like no power supply you know like one cable for power network so if it was a Plex server, I could literally actually that'd be really cool. Like you could literally go to your friend's house and if they had POE, plug it in and boom, they have a Plex server now. <laughs> oh, that would be pretty interesting. Yeah, there was one. Oh, the case. And then there's a case you can get for five bucks, um, which actually looks like kind of a cool case. So, yeah. Um, another thing to note, if you do have like Raspberry Pi three, like uh, like working for you on the SD card, uh, you can't just swap it out and get it working. Um, you do have to update to Debian 10 Buster uh, for it to boot. Uh, but once you do that, uh, you should be able to be up and running. No problem. Cool. Pretty exciting stuff. It's, a, it's just amazing. The compute power you can get for so little money now. Um, you shared the link before I, 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 I've avoided raspberry Pi, And I mean, I, it was so hard not to just click purchase for 35 bucks. And I, and I, <laughs> you know, I, I, re, I resisted the temptation cause I'm already stressed out with all the things. I'm a homeowner now. It's a hundred year old house. So I'm like, okay, I got to fix that. I'm like, no, nah, I don't need this other thing, but man, is it tempting <laughs> at $35? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's mm. in, in USB-C, right? So like you already have oh, everything that. about the specs, everything about it. I was like, this is, this sounds like I waited just the right time. Let's get it. And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, a friend of ours actually, um, he installed, uh, what the heck was it? He, he uses it as a, uh, as a game system. Um, so it has an emulator on there for a whole bunch of different old game systems. So he actually brought it over, uh, plugged it in and we were playing like, you know, Pac-Man and some of those old classic games. So 
that was pretty cool too. And that was the older pie. I mean, yeah, just, those kits are cool. I know my yeah. manager here, Thomas, uh, I think he's been on the show a couple of times. He mm-hmm. did that, you know, set up an emulator and they're pretty, they're pretty fun little things. Those are cool little kits. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So we do have to move on. So the next one, your five laws of software estimates. This guy looks familiar. Yep. So we just had Steve Smith on, uh, our Dallas. So this is from our Dallas.com. And, uh, I saw this blog blog post about software estimates, and I think it just resonated with me. Um, you know, they're pretty quick and only five. So, first law of estimates: estimates are a waste. Um, really, estimation don't really add a lot of value to uh, a business. Mm-hmm. Um, they're important; they're needed by certain people, but the effort taken to generate them means that you're not doing what that task you're estimating actually is yeah you know it's funny because people whenever i talk about waste to people because i talk about how like just about everything in the software process is actually waste and (laughs) uh but but what what that means is waste is everything that is not delivering value to your customers so um that that just means that almost everything you're doing is waste unless you're actually writing code that like actually ships to your customers or you're building something that is part of that uh to ship to customers so like that is, it sounds like a very negative thing, but it's basically everything other than delivering that value. So I have to completely agree with him here. Do you guys use it differently than just like the word overhead? Um, Not really. Yeah, I think of it like as like overhead, like, yeah, it's yeah. Just kind of a tax you pay almost. Yeah, but but over overhead almost implies, I don't know, overhead almost almost implies that it's something you can remove. Like, sure. oh, this person yeah, is overhead. Right. Like, we'll just we'll just get rid of them. Um, but no, there's yeah. a lot of waste that like you and, and maybe it maybe it's not waste then I guess if it's at, well, no, I guess it is still waste. So I think there's I think there is a little bit of of nuance there. Yeah, it's not a perfectly burning engine, though. There's 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 there's, yeah. you know, byproduct in the, you know, in the ultimate output. There's stuff that there's necessary stuff that has to happen. Yeah. I mean, like waste on your car is like, I mean, there's things that are like user serviceable or that are, that are even serviceable by mechanics, you know, like, um, we actually have a story in a little bit about like a user serviceable machine and, and that, that is wasteful in actually creating the product. But once the product is in your hands is obviously we all agree that it's useful. So I guess that's being shipped as a feature though. So maybe it isn't. So I don't know. <laughs> we don't get to, we don't need to get that hung up, but just when, when people hear the, the term waste and they get like offended, like just move on, just, just don't go ahead, Carl. <laughs> yep. So the next one, our estimates are non-transferable. So uh, this goes a bunch of different ways, but for instance, if I ask you like to estimate a, a certain task, um, I can't assume that it's going to take uh, me as long to do that task as what you estimated because I have different skill set and ability mm-hmm. and perspective. In addition, if I'm working on – if I have two similar tasks, um, I can't transfer my estimate for one to the other because there might be nuances on the other one. Uh, they might be similar as a whole, but uh, there might be – uh, things in your system and your code base that's already set up to handle one of those uh, a little bit more better or it was maybe partially integrated previously. So um, when you have an estimate, you know, it's for that person for that task only. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh, the next uh, estimates are wrong. Um, <laughs> I really like the the graphic on this one because we've, uh, at least in the U.S., a, a lot of us have seen this, that hurricane chart that the further out 
that it gets where it tries to predict the path of a hurricane, it just turns into this huge cone because they have no idea where it's going to go. So it could move, you know, a hundred miles out of the way three days from now. Whereas we're pretty sure tomorrow it might only be 10 or 15 miles off. Mm -hmm. So the further out you go, uh, the worse your estimates are going to be. The fourth law of estimates, estimates are temporary. Um, They're for the here and now. You know, we might estimate something uh, and it's for the current state of the system that you're in. Uh, A year from now, that system is going to be in a totally different state. So, uh, you know, you can't hold on to that and assume that it's still going to be relevant later on. And finally, estimates are necessary. So when we couple this with the first one, um, where estimates are a waste, you know, there are business reasons, you know, we, uh, that, uh, estimates are needed. Uh, you need them to, you know, prove the value of something or prove that it's not worth, uh, uh, investing into building certain features. Yep. That's great. Okay. Should we move on? Yep. Um, thin yet repairable devices, HP proves that they exist. Yeah. So I, I thought this one was really interesting because I fix it does teardowns of like, I think everything, any electronic device out there, they tear it apart and they give it a rating, like how fixable it is. And it's been a trend, I think for what pretty much since like the iPhone came out and like the MacBook air that, you know, we've started and by we, I mean the industry has started like gluing these devices together and making them so you know, in the past, you might have had like a nice port to upgrade your RAM in. Now that RAM is glued in and the case around it's glued. And, you know, even if you could take it apart, you have to take apart the whole thing in order to do it. Um, but HP has had uh, a few devices now that are just as uh, thin and uh, uh, slim as many of the other modern products that are out there, except that it does get good ratings on um, being able to take it apart, service the pieces, and then put it back together in a reliable way. Mm-hmm. You know, I always wonder, like, basically what that means is there's a lot of components in here that have connectors um, instead of being soldered together. Um, I wonder what that does mean for reliability. Like, I think, you know, I think we're actually pretty good at making connectors these days that are that are pretty good. Um, but if you do have something that's subject to vibration or is, you know, jostled around or you drop it or whatever, I wonder if this is more susceptible to that. I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't use that as a reason not to buy it. Um, but I wonder, I wonder what the trade, what the full trade-offs are, are there. I think it's probably lazy and easy to just glue everything to get a solder and glue everything together. Um, and then just sort of deal with it later. Um, yeah, looking at a lot of these pictures though, mm-hmm. even though, you know, there are definitely clips and stuff, you also see lots of, you know, holes for where screws go. Yeah. So, I mean, there are other kind of fasteners that you can use to make these, true. uh, you know, you know, withstand that kind of, uh, you know, daily, um, just jostling. Yeah. That's a really good point. And, and it also mentioned that instead of having like entirely weird fasteners that it uses like Torx screws, which are, are, not everybody might not have those, but those are a standard uh, bit that are easily accessible. Yeah. It's not this like arms race, like where people keep inventing like new, um, new types of screw heads so that, you know, it's like, Oh, only, only we can do this, which is, 
a losing proposition as well. Cause obviously it's easy to which, make a which, screwdriver, <laughs> which, which I always think is interesting. Like, uh, seeing like those really odd screws on like happy meal toys for McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it's like, really, what are you protecting there? You know, me. Oh, from I'm sure there door. was a lawsuit or a dead kid. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there was one somewhere, you know, like they got into their dad's tools or mom's tools and, unscrewed it and then like swallow the parts or something. There's, there's gotta be a story behind that. Um, or, or yeah, some lawsuit where, you know, they're like, Oh, you just use a standard Phillips screw. Therefore it's supposed to be user serviceable. So when I have an issue, I'm going to come to you and <laughs> I don't know, people are crazy. Um, Google's robots.txt parser is now open source. Really? This is really cool in, in a bunch of ways. And I, I mean, this is a really short article, uh, but I also learned a ton from it. So first of all, uh, on, on Google's side, they call this the robots exclusionary protocol. Um, and, you know, having a robots.txt uh, file is a way for you to say uh, where uh, the bots used to by Google and other indexers, where they can and can't go on your site mm-hmm. and helps them navigate your site and allows you to kind of control what shows up in the indexes. And, you know, by default, like we kind of just knew how they worked at a high level, but we didn't know what went on under the scene. So now that it's open source, now we can really kind of, um, one, understand how they're working, but two, we can make sure that the robots.txt files that we're making are going to be properly processed. Mm-hmm. So they even came up with, uh, you know, a, a C, uh, library here so that you can feed in your robots.txt and make sure that it's uh, going to react in the way that you're anticipating it to be. Yeah, this is one big code file. Holy cow. Because <laughs> I figured, yeah. I mean, at but the scale said- that they're operating at, I'm guessing that it's totally worth having some programmer like, you know, hey, try not to use too many external dependencies where we could get performance issues. And it looks like they pretty much just wrote all this by hand. <laughs> Yeah, they said that, you know, there's weird things that happen. Like sometimes you're editing these files and your text editor puts like a byte order mark in there. And you can't, you might not be able to see that, but that actually, you know, they have to handle for that. Or what happens when somebody generates one of these and the robots.txt file is like hundreds of megabytes huge? Yeah. Now, this is really Uh, cool because I I think that, um, Whenever you're parsing this type of thing, like it is just really nice if you have a company like Google that's, that's just sharing that code and it's something that you can reuse because then you just, I don't know. It's just a nice thing to do, <laughs> right? Like why keep that proprietary? Because everybody's going to write it. I mean, if they need it, they're going to write it. All you're doing is slowing them down. And I mean, what are you really going to do? It's not like, it's not like Bing is going to have some advantage. Like, haha, we can get to, mar- to market faster because now we can read this text <laughs> file. <laughs> so there's really no disadvantage to putting it out there. So I definitely appreciate when people open source this type of thing. Um, and then the last one here, the next last news article, how my distributed team communicates. So no context is left behind. Yeah. So, uh, look, before we get into this article, I just want to say this is from the circle uh, mm-hmm. uh, blog, and they've had a ton of amazing blog post articles lately. So, uh, if you need uh, another one to add to your feed, go to the circle slash blog okay. and add that to your feed reader. Um, but as somebody who is part of a global uh, distributed team, I think this is really interesting. Now, granted, you know how my team works is a little bit different and unique in certain ways, but I think that this is has some really good um, tips in here. The first one is uh, over communicate. Uh, when when you're remote, it's really hard to 
uh, keep context of everything that everybody else is doing. And, you know, the easiest way to, you know, make sure everybody has the proper context is just share everything, everything that you can. Um, there's a lot of different tools uh, to do that. One of the interesting things that they have is they do a lot of pairing and collaborating in, in of uh, development. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they uh, brought up is make sure that you're not always pairing with the same people as well. You don't want to get like little sub teams like formed or little clicks formed uh, within your greater team. So they call ping pong pairing. So they're, uh, not allowed to work more than, uh, what I think they call it cards, uh, with the same person. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, you're constantly forcing everybody to kind of rotate and work with everybody else, which I think is, is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, cause in the past I've worked with pairing as well, but, um, we definitely got into the thing where, you know, somebody generally paired with another person right. pretty much all the time. Exactly. Yeah, I'm super um, guilty of that. It's you know, <laughs> just kind of drawn to people that, you know, you naturally kind of gel with. Exactly. But I, I like that as a kind of enforced strategy. I think that's a, a pretty neat concept. Yeah. Now, are they are they pairing like true like pair programming or they're just like one person's kind of like reviewing and there's like a, a buddy on the system or like are they like pairing like XP style pairing? It sounds like it might be a little bit of each. It might not be like full full time XP pairing, but there's definitely a lot of times where they get in that mode. Huh, cool. Yeah, the, it's not it's not completely clear in it's the not article. Clear. Yeah, it's just like they they're forced to like work together. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. But I don't. It doesn't look like they dictate like the actual mechanism there. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The other. Cool uh, the next one is oh, you're they use, about the emojis. Yeah, I thought that was really. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, they use Slack uh, for their uh, thing, but you could do the same thing in Teams or any other uh, IAM-based thing. Uh, they have dedicated emoji to denote different kinds of messages. And I think the other thing is here, not just having emoji, but they put that like right at the beginning. So uh, if they put like a megaphone or a speaker at the beginning of something, that's something that you need to pay attention to. That's like a PSA. Uh, whereas, you know, they have like this big red arrow that's just saying, Hey, this is my current status. It's not really that important, but just so you know, like, you know, I'm going out for lunch now. So you can like, when you see, when you're practicing that over communication from the first step, you're going to, in your IM chat, you're just going to have a flood of messages. But if you can, uh, you know, like scroll for the megaphones, like, okay, yeah, those like I visually might discern it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That really, I, uh, that really helps out. And especially when they're all right at the beginning, that makes them a lot easier to, to pop out. You know, emojis have become a game changer in ways that I just, I don't think I could have, and most people could have possibly predicted. They're just so useful in so many weird contexts. Yeah, I think the first time I heard about it was like when the poop emoji came out. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, yeah, probably. And then everybody laughs about that. Like, ha ha. Oh, yeah. What's yeah, that? We all started yeah, with to poop, a font yeah. for. I'm like, cool. 10 more different smiley faces is kind of where I'm like, that's, but it's so, it's so much more. <laughs> it is. And exactly. I, I think as uh, the integration comes to more and more of our tools, not just these IMs, but uh, in Windows, you can hit the Windows period, and then just all of the emojis are available for you to quickly click. You don't have to know where they are or how to get them. You know, you just get that thing where you can, with your mouth, mouse, just click what you need, and it just pops right in. A word of caution on that. I remember when I was like, you know, so I, I work in the Windows org, so we're on like nightly builds. And I remember when that feature first came out, man, did I use it. And I was writing a status mail that went out to like, I think I tweeted this probably two years <laughs> ago or whatever. And there was like 11 CVPs on the two line. And I think I had 42 emojis in there. <laughs> 
So I think it's one of those things you can overdo if you're not careful. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I've gotten a lot of flack for like uh, mis- people misunderstanding my tone in emails. I'm like, hey, we we need to finish this. You know, like I'll say something like that. And they're just like, oh, why are you such a jerk? You know, so then, <laughs> then, you know, the crutch that I found, you know, and, and people literally like one thing that I got told a couple of times was like, you, you don't have any tact, you know, oh, so I, sure. which is to me is waste. <laughs> so anyway, that's why, <laughs> uh, but anyway, then I started, I started <laughs> real using, quick on that. There was yeah. such a cool article, you know, I'm going to share it in the notes cause I really liked it. It was similar to that, but it was about, um, code reviews. And how, you know, doing code reviews on a big project, they're, they're so distributed. You get people from all different cultures and it's like, is tact wasteful? Is it a waste of time? Why do I bother with that? Should I say something nice before I criticize this? There's all, and, and it argues that, that it's much less about your personal opinions and probably more just the culture in which you came up in. And it makes so much sense in any kind of text-based exchange. Yeah. So, so basically I use that as a way, you know, so it's like, I say that and then I use a smiley face and it's like, yeah, <laughs> if I went, cause if I went up to somebody and I was like smiling, you know, versus like having this like angry look on my face, like I think yeah. that's, that's the benefit that it provides. And I, I've, and, totally. yeah, and I, I've heard, I've heard uh, people complain on Twitter. I just want people to understand, like it happens to everybody. That same thing. I've heard people recommend they're like, oh, I was recommended that I use emoji. And if you don't want to use them, that's that's fine um i found it to be very beneficial i you know people who just have a certain writing style i think that it it does really help out and i know it's like this weird line that's like you're sort of unprofessional but you know i think it's it ends up i think that's changing now yeah i think yeah, so too. yeah 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 because you know i would say that a lot of business emails i just get terse yeah and that can come across with you know you're losing that that extra context yeah so just adding that quick emoji or two in there really helps add a lot of meaning yeah I, i'm just all i'm trying to say is i think it's a human thing um sure yeah exactly for that to happen i mean there's been a lot of studies on how people are just not good at reading tone within emails so it's just right. a it's a corrective measure for that and it's a little unfortunate that it has to be like that like that our brains go to that negative place. You know, somebody will write something and then you sort of picture them like angrily over you saying that thing. <laughs> um, where, well, I think sometimes too, when like, especially if that person's your manager, yeah. like we need to get this done. Yeah. Like if that's all you hear, like, Oh, my boss just told me I have to do something. Yeah. Whereas uh, like if you would have come up in a hallway situation or like, you would probably take the time to be like, Hey, just so you know, we got this deadline coming up, you know, it needs to get done soonish. Yeah. You're not you're not going to write like that. You're going to be a little bit more informal to add a lot more context like, yeah, it needs to get done. You need to prioritize this, but like you can do your other work before this. Yeah, it's hilarious too how much feedback I get on simple answers. So, somebody will say, "Hey, um, you know, I want to do this thing and, you know, they they sort of have like three paragraphs like why this thing is a good idea." And I just <laughs> reply and, and you know, they're like, "Hey, should I do this?" And I'll just reply, "Yes." And I can't believe how many people that drives crazy. They're just like, they're like, just, just yes. Like that, that's it. That, that's that was, yeah, that was <laughs> okay. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to waste anybody's time. Like I, I agree. <laughs> Let's do it. It's not, uh, it doesn't have to be complicated. That's where you do, you do the ship it emoji. You do just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Exactly. So anyway, we spent way more time on that than we needed to. 
Um, so let's get to the goodness with Matt here. <laughs> so it was, man, was it two years ago that you were on something like that? I mean, probably almost two years ago. And you were talking about adaptive cards, which was, which was this brand new, I was, I think it was relatively new. This really cool feature. It might not even been out at the time to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I so think like, you just came out with the website. Yeah. And, and there you oh, were. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And there you were at build, like showing off all this really cool new stuff. So like what, what has changed in the past two years? Yeah, so uh, adaptive cards. Just the thirty second. You know, it, it came out of a, a prototype. If uh, you know, this is an MS Dev show, so I'm sure there's lots of fans who you know miss uh, or remember Windows Phone fondly and uh, this the live tiles. And I worked on that team uh, originally. Came up with this, you know, this markup language to decorate your tiles. Uh, without giving you full XAML because, you know, the appearance of the phone, the brand of the phone, the design of the phone was was very important. And a, a user might, you know, judge that as they see it. Uh, but at the other end of the spectrum, you want developers to be able to put great content on their live tile. So how do you kind of keep that design consistency and, and, and a visual aesthetic and the same type ramps and margins, but still give that freedom. And that's what we came up with were live tiles. And then, you know, windows phone, you know, rest in peace. <laughs> uh, I kind of was like, you know, what if we took that concept and applied it to some more things and, and bots were coming out, uh, which have a lot of the same concepts. You're in a yeah. chat application. You know, if I'm chatting in Facebook Messenger or Teams or Skype and I'm talking to a bot, you want those cards to look and feel the same to a user, right? But you still want those bot authors to be able to put the content in. So that's really where adaptive cards came from as this JSON serialized uh, content description language that then gets rendered inside of an app natively on any platform and gets styled to kind of match the app. Uh, so probably that was just getting announced, maybe was, you know, just becoming a thing last time we talked. And uh, as of a couple weeks ago, I don't know exactly when this will air, but in May of 2019, we um, we shipped version 1.2, uh, which added a whole bunch of things. You know, it's, you know, minor... Uh, Minor improvements, but you can just create some really more visually aesthetic, uh, aesthetically pleasing cards, uh, much more interactivity. You can build kind of collapsible and expandable regions. And, and again, it's all expressed in this JSON format. So all the interaction uh, in the card and cards can collect inputs and have actions. They're all declarative so that, you know, it's safe that you can trust that if you're this app, you know, you're, you're, you're this app owner that is allowing, you know, Teams or Skype, that is allowing anyone to put content into your app, of course, it has to be safe, it has to be performing, you have to be able to trust it. Um, so that's kind of what we've been up to in the last uh, couple of years. So w- when I look at, like, some of the stuff that you initially mentioned, like you're, like those smaller pieces of UI, those, those bot um, scenarios and seeing how it's progressed over two years have the use cases for using adaptive cards changed over that time yeah they really have uh so at build this year um and i'll send you a link so if anyone does want to it finds this this kind of this place interesting adaptive cards i think is the only thing that's really trying to play in this world and it's a relatively niche use case but if it's something you'd be interested in it's it's people are doing some pretty cool stuff with it so as an example uh we met someone at ignite probably a year and a half ago 
uh, worked for a hospital, and they had an Android and iOS apps that were used for form collection for patients, and they had over 400 of these forms. And they were like, hey, you know, we're, we're basically maintaining these Android and iOS versions. Could we use adaptive cards for that, store it in a database, and then just serve them up to Android and iOS, and they'll present the forms? And I was like, yeah, you can totally do that. We, we originally designed it such that there were two different parties. Like, you think of something like Microsoft Teams, it's got a whole extensibility platform. You know, anyone can write apps and bots and connectors and all these services. Most of that UI is powered by adaptive cards. It's a very... It, the format itself was designed for, you know, a separation of those parties so there's, like, a trust barrier built into the schema. Uh, but this was, like, a hospital who was like, I don't care about that stuff. I just have a NoSQL database and your schema lets me declare these inputs, and you have SDKs for iOS and Android that takes in that JSON and outputs native UI, and it looks like our app. And I was like, okay, yeah, take those features. Um, they actually requested a uh, designer that were like, man, if you guys had a designer that would let me connect to my backend and let me edit these forms, uh, that really make my day. And that's actually what I demo at uh, Build this year and, and release as kind of a sample project where we've got this card designer. Well, we make it really easy to connect to a backend database. Literally any user, like let's say you've got an admin, you could almost think of it as like a CMS. Like remember when blogs back in... You know, when were people blogging? Like the first blogging, like late '90s, early 2000s. Yeah, you basically got like to know HTML, yep. or even throwing it back to like MySpace, right? You want to customize your MySpace page? You wrote CSS and HTML, and no one kind of knew what that was, but you can kind of hack your way through it. Obviously, tech people did, but regular people didn't. And then CMSs, WordPress in particular, came out with these really nice web-based GUIs that they'll generate the HTML for you. You know, it was a user-friendly experience to generate content. Uh, Adaptive Cards kind of went that same route where we're basically empowering any information worker to edit these cards. You know, if you want to put a new input field on this thing, drag it on just like you would any user-friendly designer, uh, hit save, you know, push it back. It's just this JSON schema, this structure of your content, send that back to the database. And then now you've completely updated your Android UI that's pulling from that database without ever having to do anything. You can you don't you don't have to go to a developer anymore. So that was just a use case that you know there's some advantages to this JSON uh, schema, this UI schema, user friendly uh, schema that that enables some kind of cool scenarios. So how do I use right, that so- renderer then? Is that like a DLL then, where I can just pass it the JSON and it spits back you know like the UI? Yeah, in in .NET, so yeah. in .NET and UWP, you would install our uh, NuGet packages, and oh, okay. exactly exactly that. It's there's an adaptive card renderer class. It has a from JSON, so you give it the JSON, and we output. So if you installed our WPF SDK, it would it would take that JSON and output WPF SAML. If you did that, our UWP SDK, it's the same API signature, except it takes that same JSON, same card that you've written once. And it outputs UWP XAML. And on iOS, the exact same thing. We take that JSON and we output native iOS elements. And on Android, you kind of get it. And JavaScript, it's HTML DOM elements. We that's, basically take the cool. card and output native UI yeah. and then style it based on the app to, to look like it. You know, like if you it. picture Teams or, or any of these apps, 
the goal of an adaptive card to a user is you don't know what's an adaptive card and what isn't. You know, it's supposed to look very seamless. It's very native with the UI. There's no interop. So that's, you know, the hope that an adaptive card just kind of blends into the rest of the stuff. Okay. Raygun provides full stack error, crash, and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes. Dramatically improve the online experience of your users. So, so then how many renderers has your team and Microsoft written and maintained and support? And are there any uh, like open source or third party uh, renderers as well? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And I love that I didn't even have to tee up any of these. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's just been a cool week for us. So um, adaptive cards in the last couple weeks, actually at build, I got to announce um, that the community built a React Native renderer. Uh, as well as a Flutter renderer. So those are open source available now. So you could install the Flutter library and render uh, the the React Native library. Um, we also just released, I know uh, a lot of folks ask about, Microsoft has this thing called Fabric UI. Have, have you guys heard of it or yes. seen it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you're, you know, building a Fabric app, uh, which is, it used to be called uh, Office Fabric, I think. It's now Microsoft Fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, we just released a package, uh, to well, later today, by the time this airs, it'll be out, uh, that basically lights up a card with Fabric components. So it'll take a, our, an adaptive card date picker and render a, a Fabric date picker. So the goal, and, and this was, the, the, the other two were community. So like the React Native and Flutter, uh, it was really exciting. They were the first, um, both of those two different companies, but uh, they were, you know, the first external contributors uh, I got to add to the repository. So there are sources in our repo, they manage their own PRs. Um, and that was kind of an exciting moment for us to really have that level of community engagement. Uh, but that's the hope is that an adaptive card, you know, it can render into literally anything. Uh, and, and, you know, that's been the goal. That's cool. So, you know, you mentioned how you have like this from JSON method where it gets rendered, but then obviously there could be actions on that card. So how do those actions get executed then? So the user like clicks a button and what do I have to do in my code then? That's so what happens is the most appropriate thing to the platform. And that's kind of a stupid answer. So to double click (laughs) on that, if you're in WPF or UWP, we raise an event. We, we raise an event, hangs off our, our, you know, our object that's, you know, action clicked, and we pass in what action the user clicked. And you basically do what you would do. Um, in the JavaScript world, it's the same thing. We have a, a function that you basically w- will call. Um, I'm not even sure how Flutter and React Native do it. I'm not, well, in React Native, I know how they do it uh, with binding, but Flutter, I'm, I've never even honestly seen the code. I don't think I've ever seen a line of Dart in my life. Um, but we, we do whatever is the most appropriate thing on the platform that you're running. But that is some code that, you know, if you're, when you're going, you know, you're prototyping and just playing with adaptive cards from JSON, render a card, boom. But then when you want to ship, you know, you want to, you'll write that secondary code, which is effectively, here's what you do when someone clicks an action and, and you, you, you do whatever's most appropriate to you. Makes sense. So, 
You mentioned before that uh, Teams uses uh, this as well to be extensible, and I think Outlook is as well. So, um, you know, what do I have to do uh, if I want to author or use these adaptive card integrations uh, with Outlook or Teams? Uh, looking for yeah. maybe like a quick, easy way to get started. Yeah, so uh, the, the the unfortunate answer, and, and you could use adaptive cards with Flow, with Teams, with Outlook, with the Windows Timeline, uh, with Cortana Skills. Um, and the, the bummer, because adaptive cards is completely platform agnostic, we're really just a front-end display technology, bots and Outlook are completely different. So the getting started is completely different for each of those. But if you go to AdaptiveCards.io, so everything Adaptive Cards is open source, open standard, everything, uh, not Microsoft official in any way, uh, although we are the primary maintainers. Uh, you go to AdaptiveCards.io, click on documentation, and we have some getting started there. And you would basically pick the getting started that's most relevant uh, for you. Okay. Well, that's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. It's, you know, like like many projects, our, our docs, you know, they're, they get improved bit, bit by bit. But, uh, but yeah, you know, there's, there's to-dos. But hopefully that would at least help someone kind of get started. Yeah. Well, talking about getting started easy, um, I, I went to adaptivecards.io slash designer. And I knew that yeah. this existed, but it's gotten a major facelift uh, since the last time I've used it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. There's like a drag and drop editor on the web that creates your JSON for you. Yes, exactly. And, and in fact, I can reveal a kind of secret link as well. There's a, a V slash designer. And, uh, that one is a, an early preview of something that we're really excited about. So adaptive cards right now, the content and the presentation are completely intertwined. There's no way to separate out the data, uh, you know, like do curly brace binding or, you know, describe your card and then just pass it data, right? You have to basically build up the card each time. So what you would see at our VNX designer, uh, if there's any uh, fans of blend listening uh, to the show, we took the same concept as sample data. So you can describe your sample data in the tool yeah, build your card template based on that. The designer has a preview mode so you can effectively, you know, preview what your card would look like. And then once you have this card template, uh, we make it very easy in all of our SDKs. Well, we are going to, they're still in preview, but the, but the plan is toward the end of the year um, that you'll be able to reuse that card template. Just give us data and we'll kind of bind it for you and, and build up the card. So that's a, that's a pretty exciting development on our front that um, we're making pretty good progress on. What's the binding syntax? I'm, I'm just doing yeah, it right now. It's custom. At this point, it's custom. Um, we are actively seeking feedback. So, uh, I mean, the, like, how do I reference it, right? So um, I clicked on, yeah. on your name, <laughs> which is funny. And uh, so I have a, it's a, you know, there's text and it had your name in the text field. How do I yeah. bind that to the sample data? Yeah. So if you see that data structure t- yep. pane there, if you drag over just like first name, just drag that on there, you'll see what the syntax is. So it's a curly brace. Oh, okay. And then we have some magic words in there, dollar root or whatever. And then you would see it binds to the first name property. And then there's a toolbar button at the top that's preview mode. And when you click preview mode, it basically toggles the design time surface to the uh, the preview surface. So if you did, if you drag first name in, you should see John there. Yeah, the drag is not working for me. From the from the data structure. Yeah, from data structure into text mm-hmm. in the element properties. 
Uh, drag it onto the design surface. Ah, okay. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, it basically First creates thing. a new uh, a new element. So, like, you know, drag it under whatever. Just drag it onto the card box. Oh, no problem. Is it now? I'm in, now I'm preview mode. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> yeah, and then preview. Yeah. So, ah, so okay. that's why it's oh, under okay. V-neck. Okay, yeah. awesome, awesome. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just going to copy but that. But this is sentence. cool. Like, this is like a nightly build of our V-neck stuff. It's just really, it's been fun for me to just be able to work on a project that's just completely open. I mean, we don't, we we do these community calls every month uh, on the second Thursday of the month that are just public teams calls. We show prototypes, stuff that may ship, may not ship. And, and this V-next URL is kind of just an iteration of that. It's you know, we're looking for feedback on the data binding. Like, you know, a lot of people are really excited about it. Uh, there's some cool things when you realize that the template is just this JSON file, uh, because then you start to answer curious questions like, oh, okay, if it's this flat JSON file, couldn't I just host that in a REST service and, and just reuse it? Couldn't I share a template? Like, let's say I wrote a template over uh, maybe some uh, Microsoft graph data, you know, and, and like an email template or, or a calendar template or a contact template. And because it's just this JSON file and you speak adaptive cards, I can now share templates with you versus me having to write these templates that we're used to doing all the time. Um, so there's some really neat things that, that this kind of opens up that we're exploring and prototyping and um, that, you know, if, if it's something that, that would interest uh, folks, then, you know, reach out to us on, on GitHub uh, slash Microsoft slash Adaptive Cards, or you can find me, Matt Heidinger. Um, but it's a pretty neat space, and, and there's a lot of neat stuff happening that, that I think um, we're just kind of scratching the surface of. Yeah, so I did get uh, I did get full data binding working. So now my name is on the page from the sample go. data editor, and that is pretty easy. So yeah, I, I think the the question this whole thing is begging is, I mean, this is like a generic templating language now. Um, right. So, like, is are is this compete at that point? In if from a generic sense, I understand the cards are kind of what they are, but from a generic sense, is there is this like competing with anything else out there? And uh, I mean, it seems like I could just use this like completely generically, and which is a really cool proposition, I think. Well, there's pros and cons. You know, I don't want to say this, and especially I don't want to say this solves everyone's like everything should be an adaptive card. Oh, like, dang. Not, not really. You know, <laughs> it should be. The, the, so, so simple property binding. Cool. I can bind to a curly brace. That's great. But then you start to get to the impedance match of its JSON, mm-hmm. which is inherently less user friendly than even something like XML. So all of a sudden you'll realize, well, okay, now I want to bind to an array. So how do I like repeat elements in my UI over the array? So we need, you know, constructs like looping. Yeah. Uh, then you starting to get a conditionals. I've got a, a, a stock template that was, you know, one of our proof cases. So, you know, a stock template, if the data, you know, the change, you know, is the stock up or down, if it's negative below z- less than zero, you want the text to be red. If it's positive, you know, you want it to be green. Right. So you realize your template needs conditionals. And so you're mixing in uh, some of these constructs. So there's a bit of awkwardness. Uh, it's not too bad. And, and the, the advantage of adaptive cards is they're just snippets of UI. We have no aspirations to be a full-fledged UI framework that would prevent us from okay. being on everything, right? So adaptive cards are our lowest common denominator by their very nature. Uh, and they're designed because they're JSON. Everything speaks JSON that you can share them. I can exchange them with you. If Carl's writing an app and it's a UWP app 
and I've got a web service or maybe even like I've got a, a stock service. Like let's say, you know, I, I just want to expose some data. Well, the story today is cool. You can, you can use my data endpoint. It returns some JSON, but then you're writing templating language in whatever it is. If it's a XAML app, you're writing a XAML item template. You know, if you're an iOS, you're doing whatever you do on iOS. But in this world, you can almost invert that entire story. The data provider can say, here's my data. And also here's an adaptive card template. You know, if you want to stick this card inside your UI and you can integrate it with your UI. You're not going to build your entire app in an adaptive card, but you can start to integrate chunks or snippets of UI uh, for some of these reusable things. Yeah. When you were talking about, uh, you know, how you had that example, somebody came up and said like, can I build my form in here? I was like getting the thinking of like other places where this might be useful. And I know a, a few years ago, I was building a, a dashboard that was filled with these common widgets. And yeah. Something like this would have been great for something like that. Yeah, no, exactly. It's it's really great for reusable, semi-primitive, but not ultimately, you know, bare bones primitive, but form collection. Um, one of the cool scenarios I walk through in, in the build session this year is a, a hospital network. So there's two different providers in the same network. Um, you know, one's a physical therapist and, you know, one's a general practitioner or something. And I'm using Teams. They both use Teams or one of them uses Teams. I can't remember anymore. Build was a whirlwind. And uh, let's say I want to refer a patient. Well, you can imagine the source app. Like, okay, if I'm referring to this provider, they have this form for referring patients. If I go to this one, they have this form. And you can imagine the software behind this is, you know, a giant switch statement or something. You know, you have to know about everyone you're referring to. Well, with this, you could almost invert that entire setup where the referring, whoever you're referring to can say, hey, here's my adaptive card template. Here's all the inputs I want. And then you render that natively in your app. So you can, you, the, the sort or the target destination can say, here's the UI I want you to present. It looks like exactly like your app, completely native, doesn't feel weird or like, you know, an embedded web view that has a different style. It looks exactly like your app, uh, but it's two discrete services exchanging uh, a trusted set of UI. Yeah, that's pretty wild. <laughs> and then it is. It's a little. It's a little futuristic, and yeah. I, we'll see how uh, how how it pans out. But you know, <laughs> it's just some of the things where people are like, okay, I guess that's okay. We can start doing stuff like that. Yeah. Any any good examples of like third party applications that are using adaptive cards? Um, not that I can share yet. Okay. There's two really cool ones that man, I'm excited to share. <laughs> um, once we can, you know, one of them is a uh, is a a competitor to Microsoft, you know, it's like, it, it's, it was a cool testament to, okay, we're, this is not a Microsoft proprietary thing. It is backed by Microsoft. Um, but you know, it's an open standard and people are able to use it. So it's, it's exciting to share that. I think once, I think once that is made public, it makes it easier for uh, us. You know, the hope is that this just becomes an industry exchange format. You know, for primitive UI, just a standardized way for services and devices to exchange content uh, in a in a trusted way. Uh, again, that just renders purely natively. You know, it's so it's and and it's secure. So it's you, you don't have to worry about UI interop. You see this right, right now today with HTML. You'll you'll get that. You know, I can I can host a web view in my app and and render HTML from someone like an iframe, but. 
on a native app, you just get that interop. And I can't trust that, you know, is it going to be styled correctly? Is it going to look or feel weird? Whereas adaptive cards, you, you lose all those concerns. Um, and, and because it's JSON, everyone speaks it. So you can have these kind of microservice exchanging it. So, uh, nothing to share at this point, but hopefully uh, pretty soon. Okay. So is the development for all of this, uh, out on GitHub or somewhere else? I know that Microsoft yeah. loves doing that lately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm still getting through Jeff Wilcox's latest blog on, uh, moving you know up to twenty thousand microsoft engineers onto github um but yeah so everything's at github uh slash microsoft slash adaptive cards um all our feature development on there all our current specs and feature requests the code if you want to jump into the code um all on on github awesome okay um anything any any other future stuff i know you showed us the the designer preview and some of the data binding any anything else on the roadmap you want to share no i think that's good for now uh but i'll tease up some stuff that if you want to invite me on in like you know six seven months well we've got some fun stuff in the works too no this is the last time for sure this is the last (laughs) (laughs) no i'm just kidding no anytime you want to come back on absolutely awesome okay any more questions carl i think we're good awesome um, and then we have, what do you have for the app of the week, Carl? This is what I would have picked too. This app of the week is pretty awesome because the windows terminal preview is in the Microsoft store right now. So if you have a 1903 update on your, uh, PC or laptop, you can go to the store, download it and run it right now. Um, so go out to our show notes, click that link, go get it. And then you can use our dev tips of the week. Because there's a bunch of them. So first of all, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to, when you open it up, it's actually kind of uh, like uneventful because you get PowerShell and you get the command line. And you're like, okay, they just look normal. Where's all this cool stuff that I was told that I can do? Yeah. Well, here's a blog post that tells you how you go about customizing uh, the new Windows Terminal app. So you can do stuff like set the translucency uh, and transparency background image uh you can get animated background images on there even so uh you can read up on how to do all of that uh it's pretty simple and the cool thing about it is when you do make those changes you're just editing a json file more json and then uh as soon as you hit save they immediately take effect you don't have to restart the app or anything and then going a step further scott hanselman has a blog post um he actually integrated his build system into his Windows terminal. So when he does a .NET build, it goes ahead and will change the background, the animated GIF, if it failed. So he can have like a, you know, like a, a sad face or something when it when it fails in his terminal, right where he's doing the build from. So I thought that was pretty cool. I'm doing like the craziest slash stupidest thing ever. So. I was like, what is the As perfect, normal. what is the perfect background for a terminal? What would you say? <laughs> what would you say? There's so many different ones you could do. The matrix. <laughs> I did that and moved on already. So what was that? As somebody, I did that and moved on. So oh, you did that one. I'm, I'm, I got, I'm sure, I'm sure the opacity is going to be key, right? For that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the actual, the, the problem with that is you want like a good animated GIF of that, mm-hmm. but it's really hard to find a good high quality one. 
I don't think the quality is too high because it's like a background image. I don't know. I've already acquired no, one. No, you if you get it too low quality, it gets blocky. You you want something smooth. Okay. Well, <laughs> I will make that my mission. Trust me, there's a lot of bad ones out there. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. And and what's cool is I mean, all you have to do, you have to save your background image to this like uh roaming folder uh that's in that's in the article that you linked. You change, you set the opacity and then you change the image stretch mode. So it's all just editing this JSON file. It's super, super simple. And, uh, and boom, and you can have uh, matrix as your, uh, as your background. <laughs> so that's gotta be really terrible because, um, I mean, that really has to like interfere with what you're typing, but I don't care. It's not as bad as what you think. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. So that'll, that's just, that's how I'm going to roll. Um, so you got through so all then your I tips, also have, or you have another one? No, I have, I have one more that's okay. not Windows Terminal related. Uh, so if you click on this final link in the show notes, uh, it's called Visual Studio Tips and Tricks. And this is uh, by an, a blog post by Mads Christensen. And what this is, is it shows you a bunch of just tips and tricks for debugging in um, Visual Studio. But the cool thing of it is it also tells you when it got added to Visual Studio. So some of these were added a long time ago. Like, uh, there's one here that says supported from Visual Studio 2013 or supported from Visual Studio 2017 version 15.8. So if you are trying to find out if, uh, one of these tips is going to work for you, because there's some projects that you just have to use an old version of Visual Studio for. Or maybe your company hasn't upgraded to the latest and greatest. Um, you can still have access to some of these. Uh, like some of the ones that would have been great for me, um, is there's one, uh, shift alt P does a reattach to process. And I n- remember having to do that manually back in the day, but it's not supported into Visual Studio 2017. Uh, whereas they show like hitting F10, that was part of Visual Studio 2005. So there's a lot of really cool ones in here, including like adding shortcuts so you can uh, auto pull from Git. Um, just go in. Uh, we've covered a few of these on the show in the past, but there's a lot of new ones here as well. Uh, if you're using Visual Studio, even on a somewhat regular basis, it's worthwhile to go check all of these out. Okay, I almost have the matrix done. I got the GIF GIF in the right place, and I was just editing my config file. Okay, uh, let's see, where were we? Um, okay, so Matt, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's Matt Heidinger. I like just, it's the word hiding with a gur at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, that is, actually doesn't help because that's, that's just that's a not true though now now you know how to pronounce my name but i have no idea how to spell it but yeah, that's but okay that's still not right though because it's hiding with a er at the end not gur no it's a gur you're saying it wrong i just don't correct people anymore <laughs> <laughs> well no no no. what i'm saying is we have to record the whole show over let's start over <laughs> <laughs> was i saying matt correctly at least <laughs> <laughs> yes matt you got right <laughs> <laughs> so your last name though is spelled h-i-d ing so that's hiding yeah and then oh i see what you're saying phonetically it's Gerger. yeah but but whenever you're whenever you're saying how to get to your twitter page i know that's you'd, why I you'd say hiding and now you're really making me feel bad <laughs> <laughs> so it's hiding er yes yes <laughs> okay <laughs> or just go to the show notes you know whichever you find easier yeah well they're not gonna find this easy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just go to com and click on his link no if you yeah. type in show er <laughs> right no, no. <laughs> carl where can people find you 
You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Matt, thank you so much for coming back on here and telling us all the latest about adaptive cards. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. 